2: Welcome to Amtower Off-Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a uh, return guest. One hadn't been here for a while, but then we'll take care of that. Uh, Bob Lofeld of Lofeld Consulting and Kevin Plexico from Deltec slash Govwin or just Deltec? Just Deltec. Just Deltec. Plain old ordinary Deltec that's been here forever. Um, so welcome to the show, guys. Kevin uh it's been a while, so fill people in on who you are, what you do, and what you bring to the market.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah, again, Kevin Plexico. I'm Senior Vice President of Information Solutions for Dell Tech, which essentially means that I run our information products, uh, specifically GovWin IQ, which is a market intelligence solution for government contractors. And many in the area here in D.C. Uh, are, are users of the product for helping with our business development efforts.
0: Cool. Roberto. Uh, Bob Lofeld, uh, CEO, founder, Lofeld Consulting Group. Uh, We're a uh, principally a capture and proposal house for government contractors. Been around now 17 years. Hard to believe.
2: 17 already. Seven, 17 years. You're and, catching up, and man. Strong. You're catching up. Strong. Uh, this is 36 years now for me as wow. of wow. the first of wow. January. Well done. Time flies when you're dragging your feet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I ain't leaving this market. Don't hold your breath. Um so uh we're here because uh in December Bob and I were attending a uh, a Washington Technology power breakfast and it was about GWAC, so of course Bob and I are gonna be there. Uh mm-hmm. and Kevin did uh sort of the opening spiel on the the state of GWAC. So um Kevin let's just let's just start right there. What is the the state of GWACs? You know, I, I perpetually see growth headlines for all yeah. of those vehicles.
1: Yeah, a lot of the agencies are being challenged with migrating from uh, what they call lower tier contracts in the category management uh, nomenclature and to push them to best practice contracts, which in many cases are the GWACs. So what we're seeing is, especially in the administrative agencies like education and agriculture a uh, big move away from kind of their own contract vehicles to adopt uh, government-wide acquisition contracts as a way of getting better back buying practices, harnessing the buying power of federal agencies, and, and moving on to vehicles that are more standardized.
2: How much of that migration do you think – and Bob, jump in here too – would be predicated on the overworked contracting offices too.
1: I certainly think that's a function of it for agencies. I you know, think of a lot a lot of civilian agencies that really don't have the acquisition workforce of like a NASA or a Department of Defense where they can, you know, effectively stand up and manage their own vehicles without much of a challenge, but as you get into some of the administrative agencies and civilian markets, you know, they don't have the acquisition workforce to do that. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of them have used other vehicles that are still kind of not necessarily GWAC, you know, official GWACs for their acquisitions.
0: So when Ann Rung was running Office of Federal Procurement Policy, she declared that there were too many contracts in play and that the administrative burden was too large for the contracting community and that the right thing to do would be to consolidate contracts, have fewer contracts, manage them better. And that set in motion this uh, concept of category management, which has now uh, matriculated into a set of best-in-class vehicles that are are popular and used broadly across the government market.
2: Okay, so uh, the category management. Let's touch that briefly. Four tiers. What are they?
1: Uh, There's basically it's the big contracts, which is uh, tier four, and then it goes to the different numbers. And as they get down to the different numbers, the agencies are basically being challenged with moving away from those lower tier contracts to the higher tier, the better contracts, and ideally the best in class. And I think we see different agencies at different stages of that, and some of them moving faster. And the DOD, they still have a lot of their own contracts that GSA and the, the council that is uh, managing the, the, the category management would ask them want them to move to some of the big cl- contracts I think they're just a bit a bit more slow moving because they have more unique requirements, and that that would say is the biggest theme that I've seen is those agencies that tend to have more unique requirements, like Department of Veterans Affairs, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense. They tend to be using their own vehicles more than Gwax.
0: You'd see agencies like NASA, which has a very unique mission, not embracing these best-in-class vehicles to extend other agencies. Do it. USAID is another example. It's a very unique mission in government. They tend to do their own contracting and not use these uh, uh, best-in-class vehicles.
1: And what's I think even unique about NASA is they aren't even in the IDIQ uh, world, agency-specific IDIQ world either. They, for the most part, have awarded a lot of single award contracts for specific parts of their you know their systems work. You know, they don't <laughs> even use the IDIQ contracts. Yeah, they're,
0: they're big on what we call requirements contracts. So if it's uh, maybe IT support. The argument within NASA is that we pick one contractor. They'll do all the IT, all the requirements that generate in the IT space will, will go to that contractor, although that might be a, a task order contract where each task is separately uh, administered, separately
1: negotiated.
2: One of the points you made, Kevin, was about a creep in uh, non-vehicle spending. What, what do you mean there?
1: Uh, it's It's really spending on agencies that are, that are not through an IDIQ vehicle. It's not a GSA schedule buy. It's not a Gwac buy, and it's not an agency-specific IDIQ. So it's it seems like that is going away. That would have been my, my initial reaction before looking at the data, but we still see a bit of a creep in agencies you I mean, know, using not due single to award contracts,
2: micro purchase uses.
1: <laughs> no, no, I think it's I think it's things like what NASA is doing that, that Bob was talking about that uh, that are driving that.
0: The, the market is sort of bifurcated, uh, if you will. There's agencies that believe they should have their own contracts and uh, drive forward in that path, and then other agencies that are saying uh, they'll use somebody else's contract and write on that.
2: Okay. So. Getting back to my original headline comment, you know, we, we've seen, and I've written uh, some about it as well, the growth of the uh, GWACs in particular and other contracts, IDIQs like Oasis, uh, over the last several years. Um, you had some stats on that, Kevin.
1: Yeah, there's some big, big dollars going through these contracts, uh, billions and billions of dollars on each of them. And we've seen uh, really Soup being the one that's dominant for IT products and services mm-hmm. and the Alliant vehicles being dominant for IT services. And they've both of them have done really, really well. In fact, Soup has done much better than the GSA schedules. I think they just have a lot more flexibility in contracting that a lot of the companies and agencies that use Soup um, find more favorable than the GSA schedules.
2: Yeah. Well, Schedule 70 still... If can I call it seventy now? You can. Okay, good. It still has about three times the spend that Soup does, but the growth factor. I mean, seventy's been flat for a while, I think.
1: Uh, no, Soup's actually more than the IT schedules in terms of the annual spending. Yeah, so um,
0: Soup last year almost did five billion dollars in comparison to uh, GSA schedules are about three billion dollars. So Soup has rocketed to uh, first place. No, no pun intended, being that it's a massive vehicle, but it's
2: doing really well.
1: You know, it's interesting as, I, as I, we look at things like OASIS, which technically isn't a GWAC by, you know, the way the, f- the federal acquisition regulations are well, written. Well, they,
2: they aren't authorized by OMB. They're authorized by GSA.
1: Right. But I kind of say it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's a duck. Any, right. any agency can use it. So it is a government-wide vehicle. And uh, I think what we've seen GSA do is really uh, tailor some of these newer vehicles to – Uh, make it easier for DOD agencies to make use of it, which is why we've seen the OASIS contract kind of really take the the market by storm in terms of professional services. Many of the defense agencies have moved to adopt OASIS. And the main thing was really allowing uh, DOD to do cost-plus contracting on that vehicle, which was not something that they could do with the GSA schedule. So that's one of the reasons that OASIS has been so successful.
0: So I'm still a great fan of the GSA schedule program primarily because it's an open enrollment program. So any contractor who wants to participate in the government market can go through the process and and, uh, be awarded a scheduled contract, which gives you a a way to contract with the federal government. With the other vehicles, it's a competition, and the competition is held uh, fairly infrequently on these large uh, vehicles. So if you're a winner first time in, then you're in the club, and if you're not a winner first round, You can sit outside for a decade before you have an opportunity to to come back in. The great thing about schedules is new players can come into the market all the time and uh, participate in the government.
2: Yeah, but a third of the companies that get a schedule get no traction.
0: Well, it's a license to hunt. It doesn't
2: guarantee you a prize. It doesn't fill the freezer for you. It doesn't. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, We shall return right after this. Welcome back to Tower Off Center on Federal News Network. I'm here with Kevin Plexico of Deltec and Bob Lofeld of Lofeld Consulting. You can find uh, Kevin at deltec.com yep. uh, and on LinkedIn, Bob Lofeld at com and on LinkedIn. And I suggest you do. I mean, both these guys generate some uh, excellent information that you need to be consuming on a regular basis. So let's get back Let's let's just run down a couple we didn't talk about real quick. We talked about Oasis. We talked about. um, STARS 2 is interesting because it's 8A exclusive. Uh, You can place orders, an agency can place orders on it, I think up to $4 million with no competition. But there's still like, you know, 900 or 1,000 contractors on it. And like the schedules, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a guarantee. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a continuum. When I look at these contract vehicles, I feel like there's a continuum of exclusivity to them. You start with like GSA schedule, which is anybody can get it if you're just willing to run the gauntlet of GSA's contracting process to get a schedule. And so there's lots of companies that have them. uh, But winning one doesn't mean anything. It's really like kind of showing up at the gambling table and taking the ante and and playing poker, and now you're, you know, now you're ready to gamble once you've done your ante. But these yeah, other and, ones... And
2: you're facing Daniel Negrano across the table. So. <laughs> right. And then, you know, <laughs> Stars it's is cool kind of out, you know, a
1: little less exclusive. And then you get to, like, an Alliant or uh, uh, an Oasis. And those are really hard, legit contracts to get a place on because the requirements of... Having, you know, cost accounting systems, materials management systems, there's a whole bunch of compliance requirements that are not easy for a small business to, to get.
2: That's true. But they have a set criteria that if you're able to follow, supposedly, you can see your score before you bid.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can look at the section L and get a feel for where you're going to land.
2: And, and
0: every bidder does that. They'll score themselves. It's a self-scoring proposal. What no one knows is where the cut line is. So you sort of make a guess, and we know... Rating
2: that, on a scale, are we? <laughs> yeah,
0: well, we well, know how many points you're going to get out of the maximum, and we know sort of percentage-wise where the cut lines have been in the past.
1: Well, with, with Alliant and uh, Alliant 2, anyway, in Oasis, there was like 20% of the scoring criteria were just compliance requirements and certifications that... You could get so you can kind of read the, the tea leaves of what they were looking for in that RFP.
0: Yeah, I, I, I sort of have a backlash to calling it a proposal because it's really it's more like filling out an application <laughs> to say uh, it asks these questions do you have this uh, uh, security clearance do you have a certified uh, uh, cost accounting system do you have a, uh, an approved procurement system so it's more like a checklist to say yes I do and here's some artifacts to prove it in contrast to a proposal, which is a prospective document saying, here's here's what I'm going to do for you, the government agency, moving forward. This is very much retrospective and, and more application-like than proposal-like.
1: And, and what I typically see is the more um, challenging the requirements are, the more exclusive the vehicle is and the more likely it is to turn into value for companies that win it. Right.
2: And And even winning, you know, if you don't produce – uh, if if the contract can novate, you have the possibility of selling.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. The way the, the vehicles are set up to win, you have to have lots of credentials in lots of different uh, areas. In a retail sense, it's more like being a department store than a boutique uh, player. So in the government community, the firms that look like uh, department stores, if I can continue that analogy, are the ones that win. The ones that are boutique players have no chance of winning. So, in in a sense, it misses the market. I believe, to get the best and brightest players and to support the government mission, it, it sort of precludes some players.
2: Always a possibility of subcontracting on these things, but you yeah, know.
0: but. But you know, saying go out and be a sub is guidance given by somebody who's never been a subcontractor.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: yeah. Well, for a services company, that's the last thing you want. Some product, yeah. so, some product companies might be happy working through a channel. Pro-
0: products are fine. You know, it's
1: selling my widget.
0: I don't care how it conveys. To the market, well, I've always, but,
2: I've always uh, likened subcontracting to spousal abuse. Mm-hmm. All primes are abusers. Some are just more egregious than others. That's, that's good. So. Yeah,
0: that's fair. Yeah, you know, the, the, I was going to say the the stars vehicle in contrast to these these other vehicles, stars. While it's not open enrollment, it's set up so that uh, any company that's an 8A uh, firm and can follow the instructions in the RFP is going to end up with a contract. Yeah, and, and as a result, they've got maybe 900 firms under contract, taking down about a billion dollars a year through the stars program. So in that sense, it's been been good for companies.
2: The companies that win the business, so yeah, you, yeah. You, you still you know, have to. We,
0: we write proposals for companies, and we get calls from bidders on stars asking if we'd write their proposal. And we tell them, no, it's too easy. You need to write it yourself. And uh, I, had one, Take my I had one particular company that called me three times and uh, begging us to write it, and I refused to write it. And In the end, we uh, sort of compromised. I said, if you write it, I'll, I'll review it. We'll review it. I couldn't believe how bad it was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Should have taken the money.
0: <laughs> no, we did it for free. But we just said, you know, you, you got to get serious about this. Well, if, if you pay attention,
1: some people
2: just can't write. But I, I want to take a slightly different tack on these things right now. So, uh, number one, I haven't seen any of these contracts awarded without a protest, and that generally means an expanded uh, winner base. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, you know. The the drag out of of the on ramp periods, particularly with the nitac vehicles, is this going to kill the desire for program managers to have any on ramps at all?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I think the the motivation behind on ramps is as small businesses get bigger and are successful on the vehicles, they want to make sure they have a good kind of regiment of of uh, small businesses that can make for a vibrant small business engagement. And I I think, you know, Bob and I were debating this uh, before, like, why not just set up a new vehicle? I think the incentive is there's probably some benefits from a contract management point of view of leveraging the same requirements and the same um, terms and conditions rather than creating a new vehicle with a new set of terms and conditions that has to be managed separately. So I still think there's some motivation for the on-ramps, especially as some of these vehicles get close to their, you know, their ceilings. It's something they need to be think about. How do we extend it? How do we give it more life and, and uh, support this vehicle longer because they, they do take so much energy and time to get put in place.
0: When you, when you look uh, back uh, historically <laughs> at these vehicles, what, what happened when the first wave of them were released, they were all 10-year vehicles. And uh, the vehicle, and, and I want to emphasize it's a vehicle, it gives you access to the market. So if you win, you have access to the market. You can play in this government space, maybe it's professional services or IT, and if you lose you have a corporate decision to make to say maybe we're going to get out of the government market because we have no access to the market. So it became life-or-death vehicles for lots of companies. And when it's a life-or-death situation, if you don't get it, you're going to protest. It's one of survival and hope that you find some flaws in the government evaluation, which there often are. So the compromise to this wave of companies that couldn't win or didn't win first time was to say, well, you don't have to wait out the 10-year period. We'll do an on-ramp and we'll give you another bite at the apple. What we realized with the on-ramps is that the on-ramps are uh, every bit as uh, difficult to compete as the original vehicle was.
2: If not more so because there's more popularity now.
0: There is, and the vehicles get proven to be popular or unpopular over time. But the effort that goes into doing the on-ramp is every bit as much as the – the original vehicle, and the detriment of the on-ramp is that we're using an RFP that's five years old and having everybody bid to it, and the standard is the same standard we used five years ago. So here we are looking in the rearview mirror again rather than moving forward.
1: So. Can I comment on the protest theme? So the protest theme is interesting because, I mean, it used to be uh, when a company bid on a piece of work, they were bidding on a piece of work that was a discrete kind of effort, mm-hmm. and the the agency that was running it was going to be the customer. So there was a lot of uh, incentive to not, quote-unquote, protest your customer and cultivate a bad relationship with a customer. But today, when you're bidding on one of these contract vehicles, the agency that's running it is not the one who's going to be your customer. The customers come later after you get the contract. So I think to Bob's point, there's much more uh, at stake if you lose it. And much more risk of getting, you know, bad customer relationship with, uh, with an agency that's at this point just a organiz- contract management organization.
0: So there's, there's really two schools of thought about protest resolution. The mm. great des- greatest decision, I think, was made by NASA when they released the last uh, soup iteration. They uh, down-selected a set of winners, uh, announced the award, and promptly there was a protest by one of the, the bidders that didn't get selected. And I believe NASA got in a huddle and said, well, we can fight this protest for the next uh, two years. Or, or we can open it up and say, well, everybody won. We'll reevaluate. And they did that. And as a consequence, about 200 companies ended up under NASA suit. The procurement moved forward in a very timely way. And it's dominating the market. Other government agencies have taken just the opposite business decision and said they'd rather fall on their sword than let one more bidder in. To a circle that was arbitrarily defined by somebody evaluating proposals.
2: Yeah, Joanne at uh, at Soup, though, had the uh, advantage, I think, of having one of the smaller gene pools of contractors to begin with. And even at the 192 to 210 or whatever it is, uh, that is still one of the smaller gene pools for a major vehicle like that so what she wants to do is be able to manage the contractor she hates to have non-productive contractors
0: but you see that influencing all the other vehicles now they're opening up the aperture and declaring that they want more contractors under under contract they yeah. were too exclusive in the first round. all
2: right we're gonna take a break you're listening to amtower off-center on federal news network my guests today are kevin plexico of Tech, bob lofeld of lofeld consulting Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about the impact of all of this stuff on small businesses. Uh, Again, you're listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network, back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Uh, Again, I'm here with uh, Bob Lofeld, Lofeld Consulting, Kevin Plexico of Dell Tech, and we're discussing uh, GWACs and IDIQs, uh, uh, government-wide vehicles so none of these have announced anything regarding next iterations, correct? I, I haven't
1: heard of any announced versions, but I think we all know they're coming at some point.
2: At some point. But predicated on the dollars uh, set aside for the caps for each of these vehicles, something like soup, uh, you know, I think their, their cap is $20 billion for each iteration if she's clipping off at $5 billion a year, we aren't that far out. There's there's three primary vehicles for products, GSA, uh, soup, and CIOCS. ITES has some, but,
1: you know. Yeah, that's more Army-specific.
2: Right. My question is, if you
1: want on to these, when do you start planning? Yesterday, probably, is the best answer, I would say.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd say that the- – the approach is take a look at all the vehicles, look at your customers that you're serving or want to serve, and figure out which vehicles are the ones to to have in your portfolio, and then start today. and And if you've got a three-year uh, lead time on it, that's that's not too much. There's a lot a lot that needs to be done to get ready to and strategically to steer your company so that you're going to do well on those. Give, those give a couple
2: of examples of things that that companies need to do. To prepare for this?
1: Well, on the OASIS contracts, for example, uh, there was, a, as we talked about earlier, a lot of requirements for compliance and getting points for those uh, compliance requirements. And many of those are business systems that you have to install and procedures that you have to follow internally that uh, is not something you can do overnight. It requires a fair amount of planning and, and a decision to take on some cost of doing business a certain way in order to meet the government's requirements. So I think. You really have to, I think to Bob's point, you really need to understand, you know, what's the customer you're selling to, what's the product or technology or service that you're selling, and what vehicles are they likely going to be using or have they been using um, to to make a better and informed decision about what vehicles that we need to be thinking about, how we need to get on, and what are the requirements of those vehicles that we need to comply with and start planning that as soon as you can. A good example might be some of the
0: vehicles require that you have a a certification like an ISO certification or a CMM uh, capability maturity model certification. You can, you can go out and get those if you have the business base to justify it. But it takes six months of uh, exercise to get it and maybe six months to decide that you want to spend the money to do that. So here's a, a long lead item that will put an extra you know, <clears throat> dozen or so points on the scorecard, whatever the number is. And you got to make that decision well well in advance that you're going to make that investment. So, and there's there's lots of them like that alone. That, what that about order clearances?
2: Entry. I mean, technically, you just can't go out and ask. Cannot. You cannot. Yeah, you
0: know, you, it's a whole different topic. But basically, you got to have a, a sponsor to get you started, and right, and off you go. And some of the vehicles you get points for clearances, which which is k- kind of. Uh, uh, Odd in a way that you're getting points for your ability to support DoD, or a specific agency that requires clearances, and mm-hmm. yet other agencies have no need for clearances. But there's preference given if if you have the clearances.
2: Well, I mean, if if the program manager wants, uh, let's say I'm the PM of Oasis, and I want the IC to use my vehicles more frequently, having that company with X number of cleared personnel certainly would be a little bit of icing on that cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could be. But, you know, 3 years seems like a long time, so we have the certification things. Uh I when I'm when I'm advising companies, I say, you know, start attending every event around this vehicle that you can, especially those sponsored by that vehicle. Get to know the players, develop some relationships.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a business development side of it as well as an internal um, preparation piece to it. Unlike, you know, task orders where you're going after a discrete piece of work, and it's important to have customer relationships. I think it's a little bit less important with a contract vehicle that you're just trying to get a position on. But it's certainly helpful to be uh, well known and regarded and have a good uh, reputation in the market, because I think that does play into evaluators uh, scoring, even if they don't say we, it that way. We have
0: this mantra that best informed wins, and uh, if you're going to bid a vehicle, the first charge is to become the best informed player in town. Know all the rules, and the rules are very complex on these vehicles. So yeah, get out ahead, learn all that you can, and, and the good thing is the information is readily available. But you got to make it a mission to say I'm going to I'm going to go understand it.
2: I I don't know if you guys saw my uh, my newsletter for this week. I I published my newsletter now on my LinkedIn profile. But uh, over the weekend I ran across uh one of my Google alerts told me about this this thing and said five things you need to do for submitting proposal. So I go to this and, and I can't remember the name of the website, it's like Donkey Camp or something like that. But it's a generic B2B uh, advice site. And they're giving advice on responding to federal RFPs. And the first piece of advice was read it really carefully. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it, it, it's laughable, but how many people yeah. actually go to these sites, follow these five rather simplistic points, hopefully obvious points, and think they have a chance in hell of winning anything? Um, you know i don 't think the site was was trying to mislead or give bad advice, but simplistic advice in our market is a kiss of death you 're holding out hope for people when you know you're you're there is none
0: yeah. I often think if you 're going to become a student in a particular market, you want to be a student uh mentored, taught by somebody who's really an all star in in that marketplace, somebody who really understands it. Not, not somebody who's more of an amateur and willing to coach. So, you know, the better the coach, the better you'll play for athletics or music or theater or whatever your your specialty is. Be mentored by somebody who's really a master at it. That, yeah. that pays to
1: It's interesting you use that term, student of the market, because that's exactly the term I use with my analysts and new salespeople we hired. And the more you can speak the language of this market and understand, you know, the rules and regulations because they're, they're – I think they're fascinating in, in many respects. They're challenging and hard to understand, but but they're there for a reason. And the more you can understand how that's structured, the, the better you're going to be able to support our customers. And I think it's also for our customers who are you know bidding on these contracts, it's better for them to be educated not just about what they do, which is great. I'm sure they do good work, but it's just as important to understand how the agencies buy and their nuances around what they're looking for in terms of compliance requirements uh, capabilities that are beyond just what they do for for their work.
2: Yeah, it's it's funny cuz at the government IT sales summit, uh the Aeroimics event, uh every year they have the the intro to selling tech to the government session usually by Steve Charles, whose two-day class has been reduced to one day, which is too bad, but they cram a bunch of stuff into an hour and it's always one of the most popular uh sessions. And I hate it when my session is up against Steve's.
0: (laughs) So if I could put in a plug for training, we we teach capture management, proposal management, proposal writing, reviewing proposals, all these different classes. We teach them for Kevin's organization at Deltec through the Deltec University. And then we teach them privately for government contractors. Last year we did 57 classes and 1,050 students went through. The class, all, all better off for it,
1: I believe. And it's, it's, not, it's not generic proposal training. No. It's uh, very specific oh, is, to yeah. federal contracting. No, so. no,
2: I, I've sat through some of Bob's sessions before. I've never sat through those classes, but uh, one of the reasons he's on the show, one of the reasons he's one of my personal advisors is I don't do that side of the universe. I want the most intelligent people in our market as part of my inner circle so I can answer questions that are or forward them to people who can give the right answer. So, Sally, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network, and we shall return and wrap up, uh, and this time we will hit the impact on smalls. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Uh, I'm here today with Bob Lofeld, Lofeld Consulting, Kevin Plexco, Deltek. Uh, before we get to the small business issues, Bob, you wanted to talk about the, uh, the the contracting response times here on on these vehicles.
0: One of the early benefits for the government of these vehicles is that you could do a procurement uh, quickly. And uh, Kevin put together some data that, that really surprised me. It showed on the, some of the major vehicles like Oasis and Alliant, the response time from task request to proposal submission is less than two weeks for 50 percent of the task requests. So half half of the deals flowing through have less than a two-week response time. It's just, uh, perplexing for companies to, uh, to deal with, a challenge for companies to deal with.
2: What's the impact there?
0: So, so, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction is uh, the big boss comes into the proposal room and says, everybody write faster. And and the smart players in the proposal room will say, and then we can lose quicker because the key is not writing faster. The key is starting earlier and making really good decisions about which task requests you pursue and and basically executing a capture that you would – the same kind of thing you'd execute on a full and open
2: procurement. Okay. So flipping the uh, the – the chart on on the government. So, to win Oasis, they have this criteria sheet. You want a criteria sheet on you know if we hit seven out of ten of these, we bid. If we hit six out of ten, it's a no go.
0: No, no, not not quite so. Uh, because uh, I give you an example when I talked with one company that had an IDIQ vehicle. There were only three contractors on it, and their bid criteria was. If the task request met, you know, five of the ten check marks, they were going to bid it, and they won 30 percent of the time. When you open that aperture up and now you have 80 companies on there, if you use the same criteria, you'll lose most, most every time. Because the companies that win are the ones that knew about the, the task request beforehand, uh, had deep insight into what the customer really needed, probably even shaped the direction of that requirement to have it come out under that vehicle. So those those early players have a huge uh, running head start on somebody who just says, "Oh, here's a task request. We can do this work. Let's bid."
1: Yeah, what I see as a, a significant kind of one of the impacts of these types of vehicles and the the task orders that come out under them is that there's much less visibility and lead time for companies than there used to be. So if your business development team isn't kind of somewhat embedded in the organizations that are procuring them and know that they're coming. You, you, these things might drop and it leaves companies with this that are on these vehicles with this kind of big question of, well, we didn't know about it. Do we have a chance of winning this? Did it somebody else you know position already for this? And most sophisticated business development people will say yes. Most sophisticated agency buyers will be like, yeah, we're not that thoughtful. We just uh, put this out and hoping somebody would bid. And you can end up with a lot of these contract vehicles with task orders that have very few bidders on them.
0: Yeah, they, they tend not to have a lot of bidders. But the, the savvy thing to do is uh, whether, whether you're well prepared and have been uh, pursuing it for a long time or not is that you have to shorten up the, the proposal life cycle, which we do. And we, we uh, begin with a strength-based solutioning exercise with the bidding team, all the stakeholders to figure out why we should be selected, what features can we put in the solution that can be scored as evaluation strengths. And, and then we shorten up the, uh, uh, the writing cycle by always doing annotated outlines of what we're going to write. So you write it once and it's pretty good, not write it once and then try again and again. So the writing is uh, pretty crisp. And then the reviews are contemporaneous reviews and uh, multiple people working in the same document at the same time. So there's lots of techniques along the way and some tools that we use to, to speed up that process.
1: So yeah, lots of government contractors um, the business development processes grew up around the very long traditional r f p processes, so these long capture management cycles with you know lots of time to meet with customers, lots of time to meet with partners and form winning strategies and win themes and uh, draft proposals, et cetera, you know, that's all condensed and consolidated. So you have to think about what can we do to, to shorten that cycle. And I think that's been a big challenge for a lot of companies.
0: And, and those those long cycle deals are still out there and we, we still support them, but they're typically billion dollar deals in single award. So those could be a year, year and a half in preparation and, and working the proposal, the proposals written before the RFP comes out. And you know, we're, we're really front end loading the activity yeah. to be competitive.
2: Well, obviously the short end of the stick Goes to smalls here because fewer resources fewer b d people uh smaller if any proposal staff maybe they're using uh maybe they're using you guys bob uh, or <clears throat> one of the uh the other shops out there, but you know one of the things that struck me, Kevin, and one of the reasons I really wanted to have this conversation today was uh your 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 comments on fewer small business primes in the IT market overall and the impact of the best-in-class and category management on smalls?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's, I think, really interesting in this market is that, you know, we have these small business contracting goals that are all measured in percentage of dollars. And, and I think the government gets very, um, you know, kind of proud of itself for spending so much with small business. They've hit the government-wide small business mm-hmm. contracting goals for the past several years um, and have improved in, in most of the categories as well. Um, but when you kind of peel that back a little bit and look at what's going on with this kind of, I would call this contract consolidation, you're, you're seeing that while they're spending more money on a percentage basis with small businesses, there's actually fewer small businesses competing as prime contractors in the market. And these, these you know, this contract consolidation is effectively reducing the number of prime contract opportunities for, uh, for small business. And I think you know, that's something we need to be mindful of.
0: And one of the unintended consequences of consolidation is that uh, smaller companies that would uh, ordinarily want to prime no longer have access to the market, so the only play for them is to be a subcontractor. The the mathematical consequence of that is the subcontracting dollars are increasing for small businesses because that's the only way they can play. They can no longer play as a prime. So it would be interesting to say when you look at Kevin's data – the, the 10% decline in uh, small business primes, if you took that dollar amount and shoved it out as, a, as subcontracting, would that that just by itself inflate the uh, subcontracting dollars and percentages? My my guess is it would come pretty close to doing it.
1: So, and I think to Bob's point earlier, a lot of these vehicles are set up to uh, to drive kind of diversification of product or service offerings, not specialization. And, you know, a lot of small businesses are specialized, and that's what's differentiated them. So it's, I think it's uh, it's something that the government really needs to look at is are, should these small business goals be purely based on dollar spend or should it also be based on some kind of participation? Um, I don't know the answers, but it, it's definitely, I think, an unintended consequence of the, the category management initiative um, as well as I think agencies just looking to consolidate what they're managing from the point that you mentioned earlier, Mark, having, you know, kind of limited resources in terms of contract management – um, you know what this impact is really having on small business participation.
2: Well, we've actually had a reduced contracting uh, market uh, population since the you know the procurement reforms of the mid 90s, mm-hmm. uh, FASA, FARA, ITMRA. All of those tended to reduce the procurement force, and we've never really recovered. And you know, I teach 1102s every summer at my class at, at GW. I teach in the graduate school there, and half of my class is 1102s. The other half is industry, and you know, they, regardless of the agency, these are very overworked people.
1: Yeah,
0: you know? I, I would agree. I would agree. It's it's you, unfortunate you, you've that been there. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that we we as a, a uh, government took those cuts had to take those cuts to meet budget requirements. But now the the since 2015 the budgets have been on the upswing so maybe it's time to get the uh, 1102s on the upswing as well. I see that as strategic goals for a lot of agencies. To yeah.
1: So to one other thing on I that think answer. that's that's worth mentioning on this is as as we see this contract consolidation and the, the category management, it's also driving uh, higher compliance requirements for the agencies and companies. I mean you have things like uh, information protection and privacy that's coming into the market as an issue. So uh, supply chain. Uh, uh, issues are, are creeping into the defense world in particular, but I think even more broadly in other areas. So there's a lot of, of compliance uh, requirements that agencies have to deal with that are obviously flowing down to the prime contractors, and now we're even seeing that start to flow down to subcontractors as well. Yeah,
0: the new uh, cybersecurity capability maturity uh, certification, model certification, is uh, affecting primes this year and will flow down through the entire supply chain So uh, second-tier, third-tier uh, suppliers, and even we see it affecting our business that we're going to need the same certification right. to participate in that
2: market. Final thoughts. Kevin?
1: I mean, I, I view it as a really um, – I mean, the market's in a great position from a spending point of view, uh, but the bar is being raised by agencies with the companies that they engage with uh, around a lot of these requirements that we talked about, and I, I think it's it's really the serious companies that are really committed to success in the market um, that are going to be successful. You can't just kind of casually say, well, maybe I'll do business with a federal agency today. It's, it's something that's really a big investment. But once you make that investment and after you – know, usually it's a company that takes two to three years before they start to see kind of meaningful revenue. And, but once you get it, it, it's a very lucrative market.
0: I, I agree with Kevin. The market is uptrending. We have uh, moved away from lowest price, technical, acceptable bidder wins. We're now buying – the government's now buying on value. To, to play in the market and be successful. We'd say best informed wins, best solution wins, and we talk about strength-based solutioning, mm-hmm. best proposal wins, and best train wins. So if I had four things to to advocate for, it would be that, be well-informed, have a great solution, ha- have a winning solution, have a great proposal, and train the troops before you go to battle. There Learn you go. Know.
2: Gentlemen, thank you for coming in. Uh, Bob Lofeld, Lofeld Consulting. Uh, lowfeldconsulting.com kevinplexicodeltech.com uh, this is not my day job if your company needs to uh, have social media particularly linkedin work for it on uh, this year twenty four seven, three sixty six, 7 uh, because it is a leap year right. um, there you go um, you need to talk to me uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of conducting my uh, my annual LinkedIn census, and right now we're sitting at about 2.25 to 2.3 million feds on LinkedIn. So it's a relationship-driven market. You can manage your relationships uh, in part through social media, particularly LinkedIn, and you need to do so. So if that's of interest, drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off-Center.
1: You've been listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.